Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Dr. Simona Huja is the founder of Blood Orange, a global innovation and strategy firm headquartered in Minneapolis. She is the co-author of the international bestseller, Do God Innovation, which was called the most comprehensive book yet on the subject of frugal innovation by The Economist. This practical innovation playbook makes clear how and why leaders must support the passionate and purpose-driven entrepreneurs inside their organizations to drive innovation and achieve sustainable growth. Dr. Ahuja has served as an advisor to MIT's Practical Impact Alliance and Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge. She provides innovation and strategy advisory and consulting services to organizations including 3M, United Health Group, Procter & Gamble, Target Corporation, Stanley, Black & Decker, and the World Economic Forum. Simone is a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, a member of the board of trustees at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, and a practitioner of improvisational comedy. In this podcast, she shares why severe resource constraints often activate entrepreneurship and innovation. Three things that you need to put in place in order to unlock greater levels of internal innovation. Why bottom-up innovation is so important to include in your portfolio of innovation approaches and the mindset shifts that leaders and entrepreneurs should make now to unlock greater levels of internal innovation. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Simone Ahuja. Simone, it is so great to finally have you on the podcast. Thank you for being here with us. Hey, it's fun to be here with you, Kaihan. So I've known your work for a long time, and we were both speaking at the same conference, and I heard people talking about frugal innovation and the power of entrepreneurship. I thought, oh my gosh, we've got to get Simone on the podcast. So I'm excited to talk about your ideas around innovation and entrepreneurship. But I'd like to start with two questions. The first one is, if you can complete this sentence for me, if you really know me, you know that. You really know me. You know that I always wanted to be a hip hop star and I'm still working on it. Wow, that's great. Where were you growing up that you wanted to be a hip hop star? Well, hip hop. So this is very specific. I always imagined it's like old school and talking about 90s hip hop turntables, scratching them. And I take my DJ classes every so often and always try to figure out how can I integrate this into what I do right now? So I grew up in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, Minnesota in the U.S. And I had a lot of exposure to hip hop music through different sources here. We had actually a pretty thriving music scene here in the 80s and a little into the 90s. Not so much on the hip hop side. That was just an interest area of mine. And yeah, it's been a goal ever since. We'll see what happens. That's awesome. (laughs) Next question. Again, this is the same question I ask everyone. I always get a different answer. What is your definition of strategy? For me, what I think of strategy is is the master plan. So it's the overarching plan that's going to define how an organization will achieve its goals. Great. Got it. And walk us through, like, when did you start getting interested in strategy and innovation? You know, my path to innovation and strategy has been a little bit of a convoluted one. So I can take you on that journey just for a moment, which is that my formal training is as a dentist. So people often ask me, well, what is PhD in Dr. Ahuja? And I'll say, well, actually, it's a doctor of dental surgery. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm always the one at conferences. If there's a dental emergency, you know where to go. (laughs) And people will often ask me, well, what is the intersection? 
between dentistry and innovation. And I think that in a word, I would say it's really anxiety because if there's one thing you learn how to do as a dentist, it's how to manage people's anxiety. And I think in innovation and strategy, right? Because a lot of times we're looking at change, different types of change and change management, which has a lot of psychology in it. That's what it is, right? We're human beings inside of these living, breathing organizations and we're managing change, which for most people brings forward a lot of anxiety. So I did not practice very long. But that is how I got started. And as I went along on my path, which went through documentary filmmaking, making films in emerging markets, becoming somewhat of a market expert, then focusing on innovation in emerging markets, because I was really looking at, well, how do people solve problems, big problems, healthcare problems, education, access to affordable finance, things like that? How do they solve those problems if they don't have a ton of traditional resources? That's when I became really interested in innovation and and having done some ethnography and on-the-ground research in India for about a year, I found, I think, my passion and really became interested in innovation. And I think in terms of the strategy connection, as I was going on in my work, mostly with U.S.-based organizations, so mostly in the Fortune 500, what I understood is that people talk about innovation a lot at multiple levels. And I'm not faulting anyone. I think leaders and managers and individual contributors are faced with a lot every day. But often when there's this conversation around innovation, there isn't an innovation strategy. And if there is a semblance of an innovation strategy, it's not often either clearly articulated or it's not connected to overarching business strategy. And I think that is when things can start to fall down. Because in my experience, when we're working with organizations, there's a lot of conversation around innovation. There's excitement around it. There's PR. There's a lot of energy applied in some ways. There's not a lot of clarity around how the innovation that senior leaders will often desire or ask for is connected to the core business strategy. That to me is a really fascinating link because it seems pretty foundational, but it's something that gets missed very often. And that can happen not just in the larger organization, but we're talking about massive, let's say a Fortune 50, even within a division or within a business unit. I think there has to be an articulation of why is this really important? I'm not sure if this is on your list of questions, but if you want to ask me my pet peeve, hey, yeah. <laughs> it is that innovation is considered kind of a shiny object or phrases like innovation at the sides of our desk. Again, I am pretty empathetic towards the fact that folks have a lot on their plates, but if we look at innovation as a shiny object and not the set of tools and an approach that helps us advance our existing business goals faster and better and with fewer resources, then we're going to have a problem. Then we're going to have a whole lot of swirl around innovation and not a lot of action and results. So where do you see the link being broken between strategy and innovation? Because I've seen statistics that say that less than 40% of mid-level managers can name even two of their company's top two strategic priorities. So there's probably a knowledge gap. Maybe if there's not a knowledge gap, maybe there is knowledge, but not a willingness or ability to align resources. There's probably other links to that chain. But where do you see the gap existing between strategy and aligned innovation? I really do think the first one is a mindset problem. There's probably no senior leader out there today who doesn't really understand that innovation is critical for future growth, sustainable growth, all the things that we want, right? So we want people who are really dialed in and engaged. We want people who are connected. We want folks who can become good leaders. And we've got to bolster our bottom line as well. So I think the first one, though, somewhere is a mindset piece is that it's not the nice to have, it's a have to have. And if we don't think of it that way, really deeply, we're not going to apply the energy to it. So we're not going to be thoughtful and articulate why 
does it matter? How does it matter? Where does it link to existing business strategy? And what does it look like if we're going to put it into action? In a way, it's almost hard to believe if you say it out loud, like, well, of course, everybody understands that innovation is important. Or of course, there should be a strategy connected to it. I just don't see it very often. I think it's partially because it seems like something that's going to happen in an innovation lab, or it seems that something that's going to happen out of R&D. That's another part of it. For me, of course, I'm really interested in a holistic approach to innovation. I love the idea of grassroots innovation for many, many reasons, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. But I think that if we don't have that portfolio approach to, yes, we're going to have big disruptive innovation and breakthrough innovation, maybe that'll come out of R&D, maybe it won't. Can we have an innovation team or people with innovation in their title? Yeah, absolutely. Do we need some cells of entrepreneurship or grassroots innovation, little microcultures of innovation that we can seed and build connective tissue between them? We need those too. So somewhere I feel like there is a mindset issue around what innovation is. So per your comment, 40% of managers can't name, what was the stat you said? More than two of their company's strategic priorities. Yeah. And I would suggest that 80% or 90% of people in any organization cannot define what innovation means to their organization. So there are many, many places where I see it break down. And so we spend a lot of time with organizations thinking about what does innovation mean to you? Why are you even interested in that? Is it growth? Is it engagement? Is it building a pipeline of leaders of what is it? Let's talk about it and then let's define what it means for you so we can actually get there. Talk to us a little bit more about entrepreneurship, because one thing that I really appreciate about your work is that you've got these great stories and you spent a lot of time exploring that bottom up atomized innovation. I don't know exactly what you call it, but as opposed to top down, let's set up an innovation team, let's create a rigid funnel, let's measure our funnel. It's more spontaneous the way that you approach innovation. What is entrepreneurship and why are you interested in that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. The genesis of this was my original research that started in India in 2008, 2009. And that was when I was looking at how do organizations or individuals solve these really big problems, intractable problems, even if they have severe resource constraints. So not things like I don't have headcount or I don't have budget. Things like I don't have formal education or access to really any education. I don't have certainly access to affordable finance myself, or I don't have infrastructure. I don't have electricity. I don't have running water. The bridge is out. And people were solving these problems in ways that were highly impactful in their communities or even beyond. And so it was a change of my own perception of what do we need to actually drive meaningful innovation? And that's what I realized. You know, we all talk a lot about mindset, the importance of mindset. I think this really blew it open for me. It is very much about mindset. It's about leveraging ingenuity. It's about leveraging creativity and some foundational knowledge so that you solve the problem. But the beauty of it is, is that if you're not waiting for someone to give you permission, you're not assuming that I've got to have a big budget and I've got to have all these resources to do it. Well, all of a sudden it becomes very democratized and you put yourself in the seat of solving the problem. That to me was very powerful. And I started teaching this in organizations across the U.S. US mostly, helping organizations think about this. This was around the same time that design thinking was sort of coming to the fore in corporate. And it was very interesting for me because design thinking as a phrase has been around for decades, but I actually wasn't familiar with it. When I conducted my research and realized that Jugad innovation or frugal innovation that I observed in these grassroots entrepreneurs was an empathy-based approach. It was based on really meeting a core need and not all the other associated needs. And it was an iterative approach and so on. I realized that it was similar to design thinking. 
thinking, but also that design thinking is essentially a millennia old approach that's been used by people forever. You use the term Jugad. And so could you just explain what that is? The original meaning of the word Jugad, it's from Northern India, is a farm vehicle. It's a jury-rigged farm vehicle. And it was something that could be made from multiple parts of different kinds of vehicles. So let's say the steering column from a motorcycle, parts of a tractor and so on, and you just hack it together. And then that vehicle would be used for multiple uses, multifunctionality, which was also something I saw over and over again as I was doing my research. So it could be for plowing, tilling, transportation. And then Jugad ultimately became this colloquial term. It really means a hack or jury rigging. So it's sort of like, you know what, I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to quickly assess the resources I have in this moment, and I'm going to be creative about it and move ahead as opposed to getting stuck in that spot. And it was so powerful because I observed this in real time while I was doing my research. My team in India would say, let's do some Jugad. When I thought we were stuck, we're literally in the middle of the desert, for example, trying to capture a video case study where we don't have water, we're running out of gas, there's no GPS, and an old man with a long white beard is our GPS, and he looks tired. And I'm like, okay, party's over, this thing has to shut down. My team was like, no, 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 we'll do some Jugad. And they would just sort of fashion these solutions. It was fantastic. Jugad, great. Wait, what is it? Let's do it. And then I observed it in real time. And that's when I understood the value. It's not always the perfect solution, but it might be a good enough solution or something that can help you advance. So you just don't get stuck in place. And so Jugad innovation is a phrase that I coined with my co-authors. And Jugad innovation is really an approach that's frugal, flexible, or improvisational, and it's inclusive. So an inclusive, I want to just double click on that because inclusive means not just who are we solving problems for, maybe expanding that, but also who's solving the problems, which I think is huge. It's huge, important. So in that respect, very, very democratized. And what I realized then as I was working with different corporations in the U.S. especially is that there were these people who were functioning like frugal innovators and they were kind of like entrepreneurs in a way. Now, they're not exactly the same, but they were more action-oriented. They would have the same kind of approach, right? It was based on empathy. And I'm observing this real problem. Either I've experienced it or someone in my family, or I'm hearing this from our end users over and over again, that they're having this problem. And they just ask themselves that question, why does it have to be this way? Why do we do it this way? And then they weren't necessarily just waiting for permission to actually try to solve the problem. They would gather their early data. They test out things early, get some kind of reaction. And figure it out. Like, what are people reacting to? Is this possibly going to work? What kind of response am I getting? And then they kind of iterate, go forward. Very much like the Jugad innovators that I met all over India and studied about in other emerging economies. And I think it's very much like bootstrap startup culture, not deeply funded startup culture, but bootstrap startup culture. Or even I always liken this to small-scale farmers, right? They know how to do this stuff. <laughs> you can't just wait for people to solve the problems. But Jugad innovation is what helped me as as I was teaching about this, understand that there are people in corporations who operate like Jugad innovators, and they are these internal entrepreneurs or intrapreneurs. So do you give us an example of that? Is there any internal entrepreneurs or internal innovators that exemplify this Jugad thinking from inside an established company that you can think of? Oh, yeah, lots of them. And what I sought to do for my book, Disrupt It Yourself, is to find some of the best of them and take the general approach they had and then codify it into a five-step process. 
an example with Belanda Otis. So Belanda, when I met her, she was an organic chemist at L'Oreal and she was working on mascara formulation. But for her, what was really important was something else, a problem she experienced, which was she's Haitian American. And she said, you know, I could never find foundations that's makeup that you use to cover your skin that would match my darker skin tone. And she was really frustrated by this. And so she went to leadership and she was like, look, we're supposed to be serving people of color all over the world in the best way, but we're really not. We're not cutting it. And the senior leaders said, okay, well, take a shot at it. Let's see what you've got. And they didn't give her a big budget and they didn't give her a team, but to their credit, they did get out of her way, right? Because she was knowledgeable, she was passionate. And then what she did is what I think is really classic among entrepreneurs is she co-designed. You know, I think the entrepreneur of yours is sort of like the lone wolf hacking away at something and probably was somebody who was more in senior standing, somebody who probably wasn't going to get a slap on the wrist. That's not true today. And that's what I love about entrepreneurship. I mean, that risk still exists. And frankly, subscription can be a high risk and a barrier to entrepreneurship. But what she did then is she collected a team of people who were also really moved by this. I think that's a real key that I found out, Kaihan, this passion and purpose. When we learned that in Jugad Innovation, that was a real driver for grassroots innovation. I didn't talk about it very much because I guess I didn't quite believe it until I met the scores of entrepreneurs that I interviewed over the last several years. She found folks who were also passionate about this, but who had complementary skill sets. And they followed this iterative process and they started experimenting and they leveraged existing resources. So for example, if they needed end user feedback, they weren't like, well, let's see if we can spin up a focus group or something else. They would say, well, let's see where L'Oreal already has a roadshow and then let's go tag onto that. We'll get our user research and come on back and iterate as needed. Now, of course, these were folks that had some pretty deep technical knowledge and they were experimenting with things that already existed, but were being used in different ways. And ultimately what they emerged with was a blockbuster for L'Oreal. Then L'Oreal realized, well, there must be other people like Belanda in the organization. And they started by their own process. Because what she probably had to do, and a lot of entrepreneurs often do, is they create their own roadmap. Somebody else hasn't created it for them, and they're really good at navigating the roadblocks that can get in the way. I think that's a really great example. And on the other side of that, leaders often ask, well, what can they do to help? Because I think the truth is they do want to help, but it's not always easy to do that. For so many reasons, they have a lot on their plate. They're managing and, you know, they may have so many responsibilities. And I think the best thing that they can do is create space and provide air cover. Make it known that that's going to be true so that the entrepreneur can navigate the organization before, I think some people call it the corporate immune system starts to attack the endeavor or the initiative that they're working on. Yes, yes. I've heard about these corporate antibodies. I think it's, in my opinion, a very unhelpful, imagined enemy, but I can appreciate the frustration that they sometimes face. So I've got so many more questions and we don't have enough time for all of them. I'm going to let you choose the question. What is something I haven't asked you, haven't been able to say? Could be what are those five stages? Could be what specifically can an entrepreneur do to start getting that freedom? What are you working on next? What question have I not asked? The question I think I would most like to answer, I'll share a little story with you is somebody was asking me about why is this entrepreneurial approach really useful? 
Why does it matter? How does it help with innovation? And I think the answer to that reminds me of questions that I get asked very often by leaders. And jokingly, I was sharing with someone the other day when they asked, well, what do you get asked by leaders all the time about innovation? And I said, well, there are three things. So one is, how do I build a culture of innovation? Which the subtext, I think it's often, how do I build a better culture? How do I do more with less? So how do I create more value with fewer resources? And then the third question is, how do I change without really changing? <laughs> you know, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek. And the reason is because they don't want to upend their organizations all the time. Transformation is a word that gets used very often. It is something that is very difficult. I think over 70% of transformation efforts fail. We have to be considerate of the space that leaders are in right now who feel like they need to have all the answers, even in the current context of we're more guideposts and coaches and we don't know, you know, we're not command and control. When they ask me things like, well, what do I really need to do to drive more innovation? Then it's usually something that's really simple. It's something maybe even unexpected in its simplicity. And it was my son who reminded me of this a couple of years ago at the start of the pandemic. So my son at that time was five years old and we were doing homeschool. My husband and I both work quite a bit and he's doing a lot of reading and writing in kindergarten, except he wasn't. So they had assigned a lot, but he would not write. He would not write at all. Not a word. He didn't want to write his name. He didn't want to write anything. And so we were concerned. And so like, I guess all good parents, I just pushed him and pushed him. As you can imagine, that was completely useless. And he just pushed back. And finally, we kind of just gave up on this idea of writing. And then I just remember one day, he asked me how to spell a couple of words that were kind of unsavory. But I think in the exhaustion of the whole scenario, I just told him. And the next thing I know, I had these handwritten signs all over our house that said A-S-S and B-U-T-T. They were just plastered on every <laughs> door <laughs> I share his story because I remember in that moment, like, that was so easy. He's writing now. He's writing of his own volition, but I made it really hard. And I thought about why did I make it so hard? And the reason is because I was solving for my need. And my need was having a kid who can write and to be perceived as a good homeschool parent and not his need, which was have some, you know, poke my parents a little bit. And once we solved for that, it was a lot easier. And so I share that because as someone who espouses this idea of solving the right problem, I wasn't doing it in my own house. And I think it made me even more empathetic to why that gets missed so often. So the answer to the question that I was in a room with CEOs the other day or C-suite folks the other day, and they said, you know, what is the one thing you can do to drive more innovation? And I think they were expecting something they'd never heard of or a new technology or something else. And I said, just solve the right problems. That's the one thing you can do to drive more innovation. I love it. I love it. I think it also brings in some of your interest and work on human-centered design, kind of designing the opportunity for your son, starting with him, right, rather than you. And so as leaders can do that for their entrepreneurs, if they can solve for the entrepreneurial experience, maybe that's the right way. It is. And I think something else that might be really helpful for people to know is there is a lot of interest around entrepreneurship, but there's also a lot of questions about how do we really drive this? And does that mean I have to start a whole bunch of micro enterprises? And I don't feel comfortable that people are going to have 
have that much autonomy. I think what we really have to think about is if you identify and if you allow your intrapreneurs or people on the inside who are already there to identify the problems that they can articulate as solving your existing business goals and advancing those in a way that could be better or faster or cheaper than the way you're doing it right now. And you just give them support because, you know, we provide pretty simple plans. And if you like, I can provide that to folks who are listening here of a way to get started, whether it's a way to get started in solving a problem or a way to talk to your manager or leader about what is my role in entrepreneurship? Why does it matter? So that they don't feel overwhelmed either, right? Because one of the things we are observing right now in real time is there's pushback from the so-called frozen middle because they're not incentivized for it. And somebody says, I have this great idea, but I don't have a plan. And can you help me out? I don't know if I want to participate in that. But if you have a plan and you have a really clearly articulated ask, and you can help me in this one way by introducing me to the subject matter expert, that's your peer in another pyramid, I'd really appreciate that. And then I'll share back with you every month or every two weeks or whatever it is. Then I think it starts to make it easier. And the most important thing I would say is my emerging research is identifying something that's been very obvious to me, but now we're just sort of making it real with data is that intrapreneurs are some of the most engaged employees you will ever have. And the value having people who are that dialed in and are building the sandbox that people want to play in is extremely high. And what we've also noticed is they attract others who want to play in the sandbox with them. I think all leaders need to ask themselves, what can I do to start? It doesn't have to be massive. We can just seed the soil with these entrepreneurs just by giving them some simple tools to start with and having a little bit of that open mind and maybe just being honest about, oh, I'm, no, I'm totally comfortable with this. But remembering these people aren't trying to go off the rails. As we say, Navy SEALs, not pirates. They're doing things a little bit differently, but they're not going off on a complete tangent. Oh, I love it. So much more to cover and to learn from. But I love that you landed on this, the message about entrepreneurs being excellent, engaged employees that attract other ones. So for those entrepreneurs, for those would-be entrepreneurs, for those leaders that want to activate more entrepreneurship, how can they learn from you and follow you? What should they do to stay engaged with you? Oh, I think the easiest way is either on LinkedIn or just go to simoneahuja.com. And on there, there's an opportunity to sign up for our newsletter and an action plan. So the action plan is something that will help them get started and think about the questions we love to ask an entrepreneur, which is what is your path to highest impact? And going from there, step by step, what is it that I need to do to get started? Well, thank you for doing that, for sharing it, for the work that you do and spending some time to share it with us, Simone. It's great to have you on. It's really fun. Thanks, Kaihan. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.